वेलकम टू सन टॉक सिन टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द स्ट्रक्चर ऑफ ट्रूथ विल थिंक अबाउट ट्रूथ एंड वॉट इट मीन्स फॉर समथिंग टू बी ट्रू विल डेल्व इन टू आइडियाज फॉर मेपिस्टेमोलॉजी मेटाफिजिक्स कंप्यूटर साइंस स्टेटिस्टिक्स एंड मैथमेटिक्स विल वंडर वॉट एग्जैक्टली डू वी डू वेन वी प्रूव समथिंग हाउ आर ऑटोमेटेड थियर इम्प्रूवर्स कंस्ट्रक्टेड can computers check all mathematical proofs how do we ascertain truth outside the limits of our experience what are necessary contingent and possible truths is it necessary to imagine the foundations of mathematics using type theory and will it matter in the very long run and how might our notions of truth change We are pleased and privileged to have three Sint talkers with us here today. Professor Simon Blackburn, who is a retired Burton Russell Professor of Philosophy at Cambridge. His interests have been in areas of philosophy of language, value theory, epistemology, and pragmatism. Professor Paritosh Pandya, whose primary interests currently are in areas of logic and computation and their interconnections, he is from TIFR in Bombay. and professor rajat tandon who's a number theorist and a cryptographer and also having interests in foundations of mathematics he is the nbhm professor at university of hyderabad simon maybe we set the ball rolling with you uh, to start with uh, a fairly obvious question of what it means for something to be true Right. Well, there's no simple answer inevitably. Um yes. but there are lines of inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um I think the probably the most common line amongst contemporary philosophers and logicians mm-hmm. um builds on work done by a logician called Alfred Tarski in the yeah. 1930s. That's right. Um who investigated uh what it meant for us to have a a theory which could say under what conditions all the sentences of a formal language a language with certain uh certain fixed sort of constructions possible mm-hmm. a natural language is very open ended and very difficult to formalize but we could make restrictions and working with those formalized languages tarski wrote a very famous paper the concept of truth in the formalized language yeah which gave us a handle on truth but a very rather strange one mm-hmm. um tarski showed how to systematize the language in such a way that you could give a truth sentence it was called for every sentence of the language um and that said precisely under what conditions that sentence of that language would be true um and he called this a definition of truth and that puzzled philosophers and logicians ever since so what was the core idea there simon um well i think that um he wanted uh, ideally a, a handle on the set of true propositions he was interested in languages strong enough to contain their own semantics as it's called that is wow contain no, its own semantics <laughs> yes mm. um so english can say for example under what conditions the sentence uh, there is water on the table is true the sentence there's water on the table is true if and only if 
there's water, there's water on, the on the table. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's not a very surprising result. Um, the surprise comes in it's being a deflationary able, theory of sorts. It's, mm. Yes, a deflationary theory, exactly. Mm. Mm. Uh, the surprise comes in being able to prove it for prove such a, a, a T sentence for every sentence of a reasonably complicated language. Mm-hmm. It was quite a difficult problem, and Tarski mm. solved it. Gödel was very near to solving it, but the credit goes to Tarski. Mm. Mm. Mm, mm, so that was the start. And of course, philosophers then started to worry, but what has he told us about truth? What about the value of truth, the interest of truth? Why is it worthwhile pursuing truth? Uh, why is it uh, a, a crime or at any rate a, a sin to say what is not true or what you don't believe to be true? So there seemed to be a lot of questions about truth, which this formal approach had put on one side. There's also the problem that under Tarski's definition of truth, mm-hmm. the definition of truth for one language wouldn't be at all like the definition of truth for another language. That's right. Whereas mm. we th- like to think that truth is the same in Hindi or English or French or German, that it's cross-cultural or cross-language. cross-language. Mm. Mm. So there was a certain sense in which people backed off from Tarski and started saying, well, what he's done is not really define truth. What he's done is give us a, an, an entree into the structure of the kinds of languages he could he could deal with. Um, so it became thought of more as a contribution to the theory of meaning. So some, How, some element and style of rule following almost. Yes. Mm. The great logician Quine mm. um, once said that logic chases truth up the tree of grammar. <laughs> that's, ex- that's exactly what Tarski did. He chased truth up the tree of grammar. That's very interesting. Um, but nowadays, there's more interest, I think, in the side of truth, which is associated with um, value, with um, the importance of truth in human life, the importance of curiosity, uh, and so forth. So so there's there's no simple agreement amongst philosophers on a definition. But I think there is agreement. That what would be your take on it, Simon? You've thought about it for a few I'm years. I'm a deflationist in you are. principle, yes. Mm-hmm. I think that um, the... So there is no universal truth for you? I think, well, look, I expect uh, your listeners will know about the story of Pontius Pilate in the Bible. Yes, who, yes. Uh, when Jesus was brought before him, said, what is truth? Uh, that's Pilate's question. Um and the deflationist says the right answer to Pilate's question is, you tell me what you're interested in. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll tell you what the truth consists in. <laughs> so if you say, I'm interested in... And he asked that question and walked away. Well, that's right. He walked away. Well, you see, so he got no answer. Mm. But if he said, I'm interested in the truth of whether there's a glass of water on the table, mm-hmm. then we know how to set about that. We look and see whether there's a glass of water on the table. And the sentence, there's a glass of water on the table, is true if and only if there's a glass of water on the table. And so on for across the board. Um, what the truth, if you just say that, then the natural question is, well, why do we talk of truth at all? What We can just talk about glasses of water on the table or sure. whatever else interests us. And the standard answer to that, which I subscribe to, mm-hmm. is it enables us to generalize. So you could say, for example, every sentence is true or false. Yeah. Um, and that's a generalization. And it, you, can't, you can't state that generalization 
without using some notion of truth because basically it sums up an infinite conjunction. Um, it's true that there's a glass of water on the table if and only there's a glass of water. It's true that there's a pencil on the table and so sure. on and so on. Sure. But of course you could never complete that list. Um, and if you say it's true or false that there's a pencil on the table, it's true or false that there's a glass of water on the table, you'd never complete the list. And truth enables you to generalize and say every sentence is either true or false. Of course, you might not believe that. You might think that some sentences have a, a halfway truth value or something. That's very but, interesting. Mm. I think there's some interesting ideas there which okay. will we'll, which will we'll revisit. Uh, Paritosh, why don't we uh, maybe move to your world? And you know, the, obviously, there's this fascinating area of automated theory improvers. And you know, Simon has just spoken about a sentence being true or false. Is it as simple as that in your world, or is there a world of graded consequence in some form? No. The, Computers take on from the logicist tradition, so they don't uh, go beyond uh, philosophical interpretation of truth. You know, they they say logic, uh, you know, as a mathematical uh, system already mm -hmm. defines for you, you know, the the ways in which you would calculate truth. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Task's definition is a way of uh, you know calculating uh, values of uh, propositions. So you have your own logic. Yes. Now the thing that uh, computer science scientists like to think about is that. There need not be one logic. You know, computers are pliable enough. You can uh, uh, work with the kind of laws that apply to your situation at hand. So you could work with multiple uh, different logics and uh, uh, such you know, as what? See, like what do you mean by different kinds of logic? So, for example, there was this uh, notion of you know. I mean, you you brought in the notion of truth, right? Yeah. Uh, just coincidence that two things are simul uh, true in the same circumstances does not mean they are related. The, the issue of causation is something right. which would uh, uh, be important. I mean, you know, every time the sun rises, the rooster uh, crows. Uh, doesn't mean if you tickle the rooster and it grows, the sun will rise. Uh, so how uh, uh, maybe material implication as it is used in logic is not what you may want to reason about in some situations. You may want to talk about, you know, something more different. Uh, uh, and uh, so you could have logics where you can talk about, you know, something is necessarily following from something else, something coincidentally follows in something else, you can even... So nowadays, you know, there are, there are, there are non-standard logics, you know, there are logics mm -hmm. of... Uh, in modal logic tradition, you always talked about multiple worlds, you know, where multiple, uh, multiple situations arose. And then sure. you talked about reality. Uh, and, and, you know, you could have excesses uh, to what is happening in other worlds. And you could make statements about, uh, you know, what's happening there. And you could use such a framework of modal logic to talk about, let's say, how systems evolve in time. Mm. So you would have temporal logics, mm. which would uh, talk about temporal constraints that happen between events that occur at different points in time. I mean, you could even use this to talk about very complex physics phenomena. Mm. Or you could have uh, epistemic logics where you would talk about, you know, what is true, but also what you know as being true. So you mm. could have knowledge modalities, 
एंड यू कुड सेट आई नो दैट ही डज नॉट नो दैट सो एंड सो इज ट्रू यू कुड टॉक अबाउट कॉमन नॉलेज ऑफ पीपल यू कुड टॉक अबाउट यू नो हाउ दिस नॉलेज चेंजेस वेन यू मेक कम्युनिकेट नॉलेज वेन यू मेक अनाउंसमेंट्स सो देर आर लॉजिक्स ऑफ यू नो प्राइवेट एंड पब्लिक अनाउंसमेंट्स एंड दिस होल फ्रेमवर्क ऑफ डायनेमिक एपिस्टेमिक लॉजिक गिवज अस अ वेरी इंटरेस्टिंग न्यू प्ले ऑन ट्रूथ हैज पीपल वुड अंडरस्टैंड इन पजल्स और इन आई थिंक लॉजिक इज मोर pliable than uh, than uh, you know if we believe this one rigid view that there is one logic and one truth you know logic as a formal system of dealing with but but it does change the truth of the grammar way that i believe <laughs> <laughs> yes of course a very interesting aspect of the dynamics is also that very often we don't commit ourselves to something being true or something being false we just have a, a, what's called a credence that is a probability we think yes. it's more likely than not and a very uh, interesting aspect of computer sciences uh, now to do with how probabilities cascade through a system of information mm-hmm. so suppose i've got a view of the world and um something changes the probability of oh, something so something that's very surprising maybe a result in physics or something how how if i'm rational does the change in the probability there cascade through the change in all the implications uh, and so on so modeling that is very difficult there's a science called well the standard way of doing it is called a bayesian net yes and that's a big a big object of research at present Yes, excellent. I think that's a great uh, note to move to you, Rajat. Uh, is truth essentially Bayesian? Well, I don't know whether it's Bayesian or not, but for a mathematician, I think truth is just an an element in in a set of two elements. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a very set theoretic view yeah, of the world. Yeah. And yes. you know, and you have statements and. statement takes values mm. in t and f and uh, as a mathematician i'd i'd be afraid to give anything more to truth than that i mean it, i would be on dangerous ground um of course when a mathematician How says that a certain the... theorem is true mm-hmm. it's always in some formal system uh Uh, some rules of inference and you know if you assume that your axioms of the formal system and your rules of inference are okay then this theorem can be derived from that but um you know beyond that i'd be afraid to give any value to truth uh it's just as i said uh, uh, a two element set one of the elements uh So for you does does truth have an if then structure if yes. x then y That's right it it always does um if i assume these things have the value t then this will also have the value t and and you know and by some rules uh by some function Yeah by some rules of inference um so uh I'd be afraid to say anything beyond that. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel, but you know, historically, 
you know, the mathematicians have had periods of, you know, a much more definitive idea of truth, but they've always turned out to be wrong. So that's why I, I, I'd be afraid of it. I mean, you know, we thought that there was just one geometry and there was no one geometry. And we thought that there's one arithmetic and now we know that there are many arithmetics. So... Uh, so let me ask you this. Obviously, there's there's this transition from something being a conjecture to it being proven and becoming a theorem. Right. Um, how does that work? How do you even decide that this is a conjecture? I mean, are, uh, are there things you, you set aside saying that this is not even a conjecture? Well, actually, you know, uh, uh, giving a conjecture can be sometimes quite dangerous. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the the best example of that is is you know the Fermat prime conjecture, where he said that uh, one plus two to the power of two to the power of t is always a prime, and uh, he, you know, it, it turned out that for some low values of t up to four, it was, but for as low a value of t as 5, it turned out not to be a prime. Sure. And, no, no, but the interesting thing is that that uh, people started saying that, you know, maybe there are some finitely many exceptions. Um, you know, they, they still held on uh, to, to the conjecture. But <laughs> finitely now, many now, exceptions. now we know, uh, actually, you know, it, since it grows very fast, even for a computer, we know what, what happens from t equal to 5 to t equal to 29 and and none of them have turned out to be primes yeah uh, so uh yeah none of them have turned out to be primes so now maybe the conjecture is standing on its head um well, maybe just for some few low values of t so it it can be quite you know that, that's an example of a conjecture that's gone horribly wrong um but uh, a conjecture normally is it's a hunch, but it's a hunch based on um, solid information. Um, you normally have uh, some picture of, of, of you know, the pathway of getting to the proof of that conjecture, though you may not have the details, and, and you, you make the conjecture. Another uh, decent example of this is... Um, you know, there's this notion of finite simple groups. Okay. And, uh, you know, there were ob- object of study and, you know, simple groups kept on being discovered uh, uh, at the turn of the 19th century, then 20th century, around about just before the First World War. Matthew discovered five simple groups and then people, you know, some random simple groups, some class of simple groups. And then suddenly they... I think it was in the um, late 60s or early 70s, uh, there was this hunch that um, we've exhausted the list of finite simple groups. Um, but, you know, the, the experts in the field, they 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 had a hunch of, of why this is so and what would be the path to to prove it. And I always give this as an one of the few examples of a cooperative effort in mathematics, which is considered to be quite individualistic, that, uh, you know, people met at a conference in, um, I think it was Boston, and, you know, the experts, the foremost experts in the field, they met, and they said, look, you know, the, here's this conjecture we have, and this is the probable reason why why this is so, but, you know, that 
there are so many things that have to be proved on the way. And the various experts in the field were allotted. You know, you try to prove this and you try to prove this and you try to prove this. And about six years later, they, they showed that they had exhausted the list of finite simple groups. That's very uh, interesting. It's very, very, very interesting. Why don't we focus our attention a little bit on the word structure when we talk about the structure of truth? And you obviously started off talking about it in more set theoretic terms, yeah. um, true and false. Um, if, we, if we think of the world in type theoretic sense, what is that kind of world like? Paritosh, maybe we go to you, maybe we start with you, Rajat. What is the type theoretic world like? See, t- as far as I know, you know, it's just the axioms and the basic concepts in, in type theory which differ from, you know, the, from the classical theory. But, I mean, uh, you know, you'll ask for a proof in both. Um, since your basic concepts are different, uh, your proof would probably go differently. But, you know, the problem that interests me more is, uh, is probability, uncertainty. Mm. Uh, how do you... Uh, you know, incorporate, you know, truth, uh, you know, in that language, uh, that something, you know, things which are not deterministic. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, nature does behave in that, seem to behave in that way. And and uh, is it just that we, you know, the systems, our knowledge of the systems is too uh, the systems are too complex and our knowledge of the systems are incomplete or is it something beyond that sure sure uh, that's the that's the type of you know because for a, that's you know the probabilists use that all the time and nature it seems to be in nature all the time and whereas you know in a formal system which is what i've been talking about you know things are seem to be more determined you you have set rules uh and you know you have a chain and it's it, very interesting i think you know we you know we're touching upon this notion of necessary possible and contingent truths and do necessary truths have a different formal structure simon i don't think they have a different structure because that's what the physicists be- claim that's what because if something is true here it should be true everywhere yeah well um they're different strengths of necessary. I mean, the strongest sure. is logical necessity, that somehow if you deny it, you fall into a contradiction, mm. which is the ultimate no-no. Everybody agrees that you mustn't do that. Yeah. Um, the um, Everybody, I think, except some continental philosophers <laughs> who, re- who rejoice in falling into contradictions. But that's, we leave that to one side. There are people uh, who seek contradictions and rejoice there. Yes. Well, of course, a, a paradox, a, a, a contradiction which is um, difficult to escape uh, can be very fertile. I mean, it's very important. Famous ones are the paradox of the liar, you know, who says that the this that I'm now saying is false. Yes. And And that was part of what generated the work which ended up with tasking, certainly the work that ended up with type theory. Yes. um, In the sense of Russell. Yes. um, Was of the the necessity of avoiding um, contradictions. Something so fundamental. Yeah, Yeah, something so fundamental. Yeah. That's one thing I was a little worried about, Rajiv, with your extreme formalism. You just... True or false. You've got the axioms and you just crank out theorems or not, um, because the thing that puzzles people about mathematics, I think, 
or at least arithmetic, is it seems so inevitable. I agree Euclidean geometry seemed inevitable and then it was shown it wasn't. But arithmetic, I mean, it's just true that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It doesn't seem to be just true that if you accept the piano axioms for arithmetic or some axiom set for arithmetic, 2 plus 2 <laughs> equals 4. If you accept this other axiom set, 2 plus 2 is something else. It doesn't work like that. It seems 2 plus 2 is 4. And you must accept an axiom set which delivers that or you're not really doing mathematics. And I, I thought perhaps you left out the inevitability of arithmetic a little bit. Yeah, that's true. But 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 still, um, you know, that's why I, I asked you about the continuum hypothesis because, you know, so now we uh, have a... Two mathematics. We have a possibility of different arithmetics. And uh, <clears throat> so... You know, there is is not just one arithmetic. And when but you yes, say different arithmetics, PA, I, I don't think anybody has dared to fiddle around with PA, mm. uh, the piano axioms. Yeah. So, so even the different arithmetic would have the same, would have PA underlying it? Yeah. Um, I suppose, I mean, as he said, there seems to be an inevitability about it. It would, it would take a a very bold person to try some, but something else than PA. Uh, Wittgenstein tried to flirt with, he tried to imagine a world in which things changed. So, for example, if you're carpeting a room with tiles, you have one foot square tiles, your room is, say, 12 feet by 12 feet, sure. you need 144 tiles, but supposing rooms concertinaed, you might say, well, it's 12 feet by 12, I'll, I'm going to need 132 tiles because tomorrow it's going to be 12 feet by 11. And so over time, you can imagine counter-arithmetical, uh, the utility of a counter-arithmetical calculus. Mm. But you'd have to have a very queer world for it to be generalizable. <laughs> mm. Mm. And when you when you think of truth, do you think of it in correspondence terms, like facts linked to? <laughs> That's surprisingly unpopular these days. Mm. Um, the problem, I mean, it, there's a platitude: truth is correspondence to the facts. Yes. That's that's tr that's fine. Nobody disagrees about that. Yeah. But facts don't sort of live on their own. They're not they're not reliable. Um, Things. Wittgenstein at one th one point. Sorry, I keep coming back to Wittgenstein, but it's he's a, great a place point to go of back reference. To. Yeah. Yes, he in the Tractatus, his early period, he thought that facts were like little structures in the world, which then sentences could correspond. They, the they world were, is the totality of facts. Yes, yeah. and sentences were pictures of facts, and it was a very nice sort of philosophy. Um, but later on, he realized that facts aren't even like structures. He has a wonderful example of this. He says, look, um, um, you could take the Eiffel Tower, which is in Paris, and you could move it to Berlin. Uh -huh. But you can't move the fact that the Eiffel Tower is in Paris anywhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 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 a fact is not a structure in the world. Structures can be moved about. That's very interesting. facts cannot be. They have a a strange abstract life. So the popular thing in philosophy now is to think of facts as simply a kind of uh, a projection from sentences, from true sentences. What we have are sentences, some of them are true, 
when a sentence is true, we talk about the fact. But facts don't give you an independent anchorage with which to understand truth. This is this is very common now in philosophy. That's so interesting because it brings us to the whole idea of language. And if we, yeah. Yeah. If we had totally different languages today, mm. or if we were to roll forward 500 years and we found something in a lost language, mm. uh, would, would the facts have been very different? Well, we'd have been talking about very different facts, or we might have been. I mean, of course, different languages can end up talking about the same thing. Sure. Um, but um, uh, obviously, if our... Uh, our discriminations have been different if our lives as animals were different. We might have been talking, you know, if fish could speak, they probably wouldn't, for example, have arithmetic because they, they don't need to count things very much. I mean, if you're the sort of fish that goes around just hoovering up plankton or something, you, yeah. don't, you don't need to count. Um, so so our, the contingencies of our lives govern what we find it important to talk about. And you mentioned a while ago uh, this distinction between truth and meaning. Hmm. What would be meaning for you? Ah, well, <laughs> all these things, <laughs> they, it sounds a simple question. But it sounds like a simple question. many PhD theses on that. <laughs> um, broadly speaking, some people think that meaning can be approached independently of talking about truth and then truth will drop out if you once you understand the sentence uh -huh. you know what makes it true what under what conditions it's true back to Tarski sure but then other people say yes but you wouldn't understand a sentence without understanding the notion of truth to begin uh, with to begin with yeah. so which comes first the cart or the horse yeah and there's debate about that yeah yeah so in, in this connection mm. what do you think of some sort of Turing test for truth. Uh, I mean, is mm, it an interesting mm. question? It says, would it be a good, uh, uh, good criterion that if we could explain it to a computer, or, right. uh, then we have understood it. Would that be a sufficient principle? To, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, it's certainly true that you get an understanding of, you, you get no, a better understanding what would, of. What would be your definition of truth? For? For, for a mechanized test to, to uh, get... You know, there is this Turing test of a uh, computer having understood something that you could explain things to... Uh, you could take conversation with it as well as with a real person. Yeah. And if you could not distinguish between, uh, you know, that person and the computer, then the computer would be intelligent. Intelligent. That was his definition yeah. of yeah. Turing test. Yes. And, you know, they've, they've carried out trials of this, by the way. Yes. I, yes. I believe uh, the last one was in 2014. Oh, was it? I didn't In uh, yes. at, at Reading. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I believe uh, Turing's original paper said that you would have five minutes yes. and if you could convince 70% of the people that uh, you are not you a, are a human, computer, not you a would computer. win mm. and they reach 30%. Wow. 30%. Yes, yes, which is not bad. And this is, you know, just bots programmed by people which yes. converse. And you could there's no restriction on what you can talk about. No. That's the, amazing. That's I amazing. mean, the, the, the difficulty that faced, I think, computers, correct me if I'm wrong, sometimes called the frame problem or um, different and this is that our, if we you and I conduct a conversation um, they're not necessarily a high high conversation like this but a sure. conversation in the cafe or something sure um, there's a fantastic amount we know in the background which affects likely inferences 
So suppose I tell you a story. The exformation. The... Yeah, suppose I tell you a story. I say, um, uh, last night my wife um, went to a cafe and when she sat down, the waiter brought her a glass of water. Yeah. Um, you know that she, I, that she sat down on a chair yeah. That the waiter brought her a glass of water to drink. Yeah. That he didn't pour the water over her. Yeah. Um, that um, you know that she didn't stand on her head and so yeah. and so on so on so on. Yeah. But, but you know all that because of a huge amount. All of the excluded life. information is yeah. And if you've got to feed all that information into a computer. <laughs> Bit that's by yes, bit, yes, that's true. Yes. Then it's going to fail. Yes. The How do you get test? the exclamation? Yes. How do you get yeah. the context? Yes. How do you get so, all the excluded so, stuff? Yeah. So, 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 why don't we travel to that, Paritosh? What can computers not prove? And it's a theoretical question. It's not a question on where it's reached today, uh, but theoretically, what yes, kind yes. of theorems do you don't take a shot at, or you won't even take a shot at? Okay, so I think this is this is uh, yes, uh, the, this whole business of trying to do mathematics yeah. using computers is a little more precise. In in more general human situations, I don't know how to transfer human experiences to computers. You know, I mean, uh, just just as as an aside, since you mentioned probability theory, uh, fundamentally quantum physics says you know science probabilities to how universe would evolve. But we are in this universe now, and you know there has been this vast series of accidents which have led us here and. Uh, uh, I don't know if that is part of quantum theory. Uh, I mean, uh, so determinism... Uh, uh, it seems, seems to work at the macro level, yes. Uh, yes. So, so, but, but uh, you know, in, in the more precise world of proving mathematical theorems in the mm -hmm. formalist tradition, you know, you would, you would, you would uh, have some axioms which are some known facts or some known assumptions, well-defined rules by which you would uh, construct new facts out of old facts. Uh, in that, in that rigid uh, framework, if you were to derive theorems and Hilbert said this is how we should do mathematics you know there sure. should be sound and complete axiomatization of all mathematics that was 100 years ago yes but I mean but but it it has been influential and sure. I mean uh, you know uh, uh, Russell and Whitehead actually demonstrated a vast amount of mathematics done in that style uh, even today I mean uh, all known mathematics can be cast in that language if we want uh, 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 so are so all it is possible to actually do mathematics in a formal way sure. and uh, uh, where you know each step uh, of mathematics would be simple mm -hmm. you know this almost goes back to what Leibniz said that you know any compound fact is made out of very few small uh, alphabet of elementary facts and you know you could check each step very easily right so now you know we, we, we can talk about uh, maybe two kinds of programs you know proof checkers and theorem automated theorem provers okay Proof checkers would only check that your work was rigorous, that, you know, you applied every step of inference was was correctly applied. You know, you use sound rules of reasoning that you have agreed on to. And so the whole proof is correct. And, uh, you know, that would be a little bit like using a word processor to write your document. You know, it wouldn't write your novel for you. Sure. But it would format it nicely and maybe even, you know, check spellings better than I do. Sure. You know, it could do a little bit. And so today's proof checkers could in principle, you know, if you give them detailed enough proof, would be able to check that everything was correctly done according to rules of logic. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, there's this very famous uh, field medalist Orvoski who claims that you know all mathematics should now be done in that fashion because he thinks that now these tools you know these proof checkers are getting uh, you know useful enough and uh, rigorous enough and convenient enough that you may be able to do it so he he seems to write most of his proofs in a style which are checked by uh, a proof checker but in proof checker you are doing the proof sure and it is just checking the proof you still have all these questions as to you know the rules that you used are they sound are they comprehensive enough that so that everything i wanted to prove i could cast into this proof system or not but that <laughs> is your problem the computer's job is only to check that the proof is there and there is this very famous uh, theorem prover called mizar mizar okay uh, it's of a polish origin there is a very famous uh, library of proved facts you know computer check proofs you know called mizar mathematical library which all other theorem provers uh, 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 import and use you know it's got uh, over uh, maybe few hundred thousand theorems in its repository and it's all proved using first order logic and uh, uh, zfc set theory wow so it's just just plodding on but you can reuse somebody else's lemma which is already there in the library and prove on and people have known proofs I mean, known results. Known proof, standard textbooks. You know, all theorems proved, all exercises solved. You know, I mean, it's painful. Let me tell you, it <laughs> yeah, is not course. convenient. But somebody's gone and <laughs> yes. done it, and now you can reuse those theorems because they are already machine checked. So they built this big edifice. You know, in the same uh, style as the Russell and Whitehead. This is proof checking. Okay, but more interesting question is: Can the computer itself go and? find up theorems proof. find up yeah, uh, theorem that yeah. you have given it and there you know this is where the realm of automated theorem proving most people believe that you know we are very far away from that reality in a routine sense we are certainly not uh, in a situation where computers are churning out proofs of theorems but anecdotally a few theorems have been proved Uh, and a very famous example is what is called Robbins conjecture. Sure, this the was uh, proposed around uh, 1930 or something. Sure, and it was proved uh, by EQP 60, 60 mm. years later by a theorem prover called EQP from Argon National Lab. Mm. And uh, this is not like proof of four color theorem where you had to examine you know many cases. This was actually a Hilbert style closed form proof which could actually be published in a journal of mathematics with some creative steps to go. Yes, it was a set of steps. And normally you know when we uh, see see proving theorem by a computer is like playing chess. Why is it tough? The rules rules uh, uh, because there's too much freedom. you know there are too many uh, directions in which you can go if you think of a game of chess and how a computer would play a game of chess there is a current configuration of pieces you know which is known the rules are known you could do many things you could move the knight uh, you know this way or you could move the rook this way and you know you have to follow the rules you know the rules are known but there are many many possible moves you know so this is where you get for, you know about, 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 the branching about, out the branching of possibilities and those branches lead to further branches and soon the world opens up into so many possibilities combinatorially that uh, it is hard to see where you are going so what you need in this case is computers are fast they can explore things a bit so they can try and explore this branching structure of uh, you know the worlds as they arise but even that gets too much for the computer so what you need really is strategies mm. you know? and the strategies can be two two way you know they can be goal directed you know where you want to go 
and you work by backwards from there towards where you are or you can go forward to go towards the goal forward chaining so you can do either forward chaining or backward chaining and uh, you know usually goal directed reasoning you know cuts down possibilities much more but surprisingly eqp did forward chaining Wow! And what they did was, it's really monkey on the typewriter. It, it knew <laughs> some facts, it applied the rules, and said, "I know these are the new facts that I have." So was it fluke? Was it a fluke? No, it was not a fluke. But what they built in was out of all these possibilities which are there, they kept only some which seemed interesting for the purpose that they wanted. So they had a, a, a general notion of interestingness of the intermediate results. towards the goal that i am i i i want to prove and uh, this interestingness was not geared for this one particular theorem that they wanted they have some general strategies of heuristics of interestingness and using that how does that know, it's a little about? bit like genetic algorithm you know you evolve this species evolves into many possibilities you keep only a subset of those which seem interesting and you keep evolving like that and it that gets you somewhere there something like that is what was followed and in the it, you know in the end it managed to prove this theorem which was not known it took about 8 days of computing and they managed to prove it in the process it also gave this very interesting fact of uh, new proof of uh, the fact that an isosceles triangle has got two base angles equal you know normally we would take a perpendicular bisector and then we would prove that these two triangles are congruent what eqp did was it's a purely symbolic engine it said there is a triangle abc now i flip this triangle and i have another triangle called acb these are different triangles they are congruent they are obviously congruent and so the two angles must be <laughs> and it came up with that it came up with this unification of abc and acb as congruent and this is all by this interestingness it's so very you know, interesting so, so so maybe this this search you know with this notion of interestingness is something that is uh, you know important i mean i would like to well, propose to you the following game you know we have this monkey on the typewriter right yes but let's let's put monkey on a bayesian typewriter you you know google has uh, knows frequencies of sequences of words so yes. let's say you know word uh, you know what may happen Uh, has got uh, reasonable, you know, occurs so many times in English uh, literature of this period. But what happens may uh, occurs very rarely, you know. So it knows frequencies of let's say sequences of sure. up to ten words. Sure. You know, and this type monkey chooses the next word based on uh, the assigned probabilities based on the last ten words that it has typed, and it produces a random sequence of uh, words. Would it be producing? meaningful sentences yeah. people have conducted experiments like this yeah. you'll be surprised how authentic shakespeare comes out of it <laughs> no it does there is there's a text what doesn't come out well is stock market news so there is this notion of you know how much freedom there is for the next word shakespeare is very constrained once you once you so once so, you crack it it's formulaic yeah. <laughs> yeah so 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 what's going to happen in the long run paritosh uh, are all theorems going to be provable and somehow i think it doesn't appeal so much to you rajat automated theorem proving by the way no, this year kepler's conjecture got proved by the computer 
uh-huh. Kepler had proposed it uh, that you know if you pack the spheres in uh, oh, three-dimensional pack. Euclidean space, the best density you can achieve is about seventy percent. Some hexagonal arrangement sure, of spheres, sure. and nobody knew you know this was the optimal. He had conjectured this was optimal, sure. open for all these years, and uh, they have been trying. Uh, there are you know uh, this is a bit like you know you have to try a lot of cases. Again, so, that's just brute force. That's just well, you have to reduce the problem uh, even if it is brute force but then you had to solve about 100000 uh, linear programming uh, constraint problems and they finally managed to solve it last year and they managed to prove it so what is your intuition on this simon automated theorem proving in the long run i don't think i'm competent to talk about it i mean i think i mean partly insofar as it's well if we go back to the game of chess i'm very interested in the whether the way the computers, as you described, can do it by following, say, 10 moves ahead and choosing the most interesting zone. I'm quite interested in whether that models the way we do it. I mean, the great chess champion, um, Richard Retty, Hungarian, was asked how many moves he saw ahead in tournament chess. And his answer was one move. The right one. <laughs> so, 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 of course, that's a lifetime of experience and pattern recognition and things. Um, whether it's a computational process, I mean, of course, many neurophysiologists and psychologists like to think of the brain in terms of a, a machine for producing computational Computation. processes. Yeah. Um, but this means there's somehow... There's a sort of dis- dislocate between what may be a computational process and how it appears to the subject who's conducting it, where it just appears like it comes out of nowhere. You know, that's just the right move. You know, there's one question which I wanted to ask, and that is, <clears throat> you know, you're talking about computers. You're, you are, somehow time is also involved. Um, you know, how long will the calculation take? Um, there's this essential element because, you know, in cryptography, that's what you rely on, that, you know, factorization would just take too long. It's not a feasible thing for the computer to do. They they cannot do it in a feasible amount of time, right? So the time factor is, is, is also there, or the number of steps that would be required would be just too large. Um, so... I mean, do we have this thing that it can be done, but not in a reasonable amount of time? And what about, uh, Rajat, what about theorems that have been unproven for, like, you probably have a lot of time for them. Of course, for real real time systems, it's... But, but, but Kepler's conjecture is since Kepler's time. Exactly, like, so I mean, 300 years. And Robbins years. was 60 years old. I mean, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. these are... Uh, so these are problems you can take up leisurely and do it in eight days. That sounds no, all right. No, no, no. I don't mean time in that sense. Sure. I mean the computational time. But maybe I no, should I say understand. the number of steps required would be just too large uh, for even the fastest computers. 
I, I I think your point is very well taken. I mean, there are no bounds, uh, reasonable bounds or number of steps that you would uh, take to prove a theorem. You you know the set of theorems is not recursive. It is recursively enumerable, which means you cannot anyway put a bound on the number of steps required to prove a particular formula. Sure. You you know uh, this monkey on the typewriter will start churning out this even this Bayesian monkey would start churning out theorems, but you don't know when your result is going to come out. Yeah. It is wrong. It may never come out. Uh, yeah, you, know, you may press yeah. your uh, shut off your computer after a million years, and maybe very next day it would have come out. We don't know. <laughs> so this is the difficulty with theorem proving that we don't know any specific uh, algorithm by which we can produce proof of a given given theorem. But we can enumerate known facts from a, of a given theory. That that we can do. Now, how much that helps us, I don't know. Uh, my problem is larger. My problem is that. Uh, Potentially, this formal a computational system may not be able to answer these questions perfectly in reasonable time. You know, there are things which are limits to what computers can do. Why do we believe these limits don't apply to mathematicians? <laughs> I mean, this was the this was the. I mean, see, computers begin to surprise us, and I I I, I my my position is not very clear on this. I haven't got a definitive position on this. That's but, all right. But there is a there is a there is a mathematician at Cambridge, uh, Timothy Gower. Yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Who says uh, by 2099, computers will uh, will set problems for other computers, which they will prove. Not only will they prove your theorems, they will start <laughs> thinking out uh, mathematics. This is his. Is, uh, is, is, uh, is, uh, so I, I mean, there are people who believe that you know it's in the natural step of evolution that these machines have to start thinking. The whether they'll think like human beings, whether they'll find our mathematics interesting, I don't know. That's a much larger question. We we don't know how to transfer our experiences to. Gödel didn't believe that. Yes, yes. He, he, he believed that mind. Uh, yes. Was different. And, yes, uh, he, he had, seemed to think that for for any formal system, the mind could see whether the Gödel sentence that the Gödel sentence was false, and um, so that suggested a power to the mind that could not be captured by a, a, a is, system is that like mechanized process. Yeah, exactly. Is a that a process? Yeah. Is, uh, may I just add one thing in that connection? So I think that is correct. But Gödel's theorems proof has been completely machine-checked in two theorem provers. One of them has appeared in Cambridge Tracks in uh, oh. uh, Mathematics. Oh, and, really? uh, you know, it was checked using a theorem prover <laughs> called ACL. And the full proof is checked by the computer. Oh. Every step. Now, does the computer know that there is a sentence which is true? I, I don't know. This is for philosophers. <laughs> I, I'm completely out of my depths. It but but make this it, has been machine-checked. It would make a good film. The computer checks it and it's true and commits suicide. <laughs> <laughs> What's the future of truth? The future of truth? Well, um, people are always going to be interested in truths. truths. People mm. want to know where the restaurant is or when the taxi leaves and so on. Sure. So there's always going to be a, a discussion about whether something or other is true or false. Um I think in the philosophy of science, of course, the truth has had its ups and downs. Um, there was uh, the Popperian philosophy of science, yeah. which was very uh, you can prominent. You falsify something. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it said mm. you could falsify scientific 
hypotheses, but you could never show that they were true. Yeah. You just had to hope, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then these pendulums swung and people said, well, you know, if I go up into an airplane which is built according to an engineering design, um, I don't want to just, just to hope that it stays up. Yeah. I want it to be true that it stays up. Yeah. So how does confidence shift into scientific hypotheses? Yeah. And so there then became a kind of movement called IBE, inference to the best explanation. Right. And this become, became very popular. It was perfectly legitimate to talk about the truth of a scientific explanation if you were convinced that it was the the best. Now, that that seems, uh, it might be a good heuristic, but of course, uh, you could still be wrong. It feels a little impure. It's a little impure, yes, because yeah. you could still be wrong. Um, yeah. um, truth and predictability. Um, yes. Right. Truth that allows you to predict. Yeah, I mean, it. it's... Um, it always builds. It builds up confidence. Um, Hume's problem is why it should build up confidence. Yeah. Because even although you've got a Induction. a good finite database, as it were, of cases, it's always possible that things go wrong on the next case. Yeah. And if you're looking at an infinitely or indefinitely expandable, you know, population of cases, then you don't even get a very substantial increase in probability from a big finite uh, subset that you looked at. So the graph can always go kinky. It can always go wrong. Yeah. And there's always more false hypotheses than there are true ones. Yeah. Um, and trying to show that our very natural habits, which we share with animals, of extrapolating along continuities that we're familiar with, trying to show that that's rational, or gives a even a computable computable probability has defeated everyone. There was a, f- a famous um, result: Nelson Goodman, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, a, a Harvard um, philosopher, in the 1950s, produced a very simple sort of mechanical way of transforming um, a, a straight a, what would look like a straight line. Say all emeralds are green, have been green so far, so the next emerald that's dug up will be green. Um, he he invented a predicate bleen. Bleen, which, yeah. <laughs> they've yeah. all been bleen, they've all been grew in this case. They've all been grew, where grew means green, and green until time t and then blue afterwards. After, yeah. <laughs> and if you plot grew and bleen against time, then of course the straight <laughs> line. Only exists if the next step is, <laughs> is green. So, so it's a question of dimension, dimensioning your graph properly. And that, as far as I know, there's no formal. Um, it's not a tractable problem formally. Um, it's always it's always occurred to me that stock market predictions um, must must be bedeviled by this problem because there you've got graphologists looking at the graphs yeah. and giving predictions based on what's happened so far. But of course, whether they're operating in the right dimension seems to me very, very doubtful. Yeah, and you, you always assume a certain underlying distribution mm. curve. Mm. And yes. That's what went wrong eight yeah. years ago. Yes, exactly. exactly. Right. A lot of these sound like fairly 
very interesting with theoretical considerations. Mm. Is there anything to worry about practically about the nature of truth? Well, the stock market example is a is, good is one. a very practical yeah, one. Very practical. Yeah, but but uh, you know, in this context, you know, formalization of counterfactuals. Yeah, yeah, could be mm. critical. I mean, what is the meaning of it? I mean, uh, how much does that change your uh, model? Yes. What I would mean, what would be a counterfactual? So. This is Judea Pearl and so on. Right? Uh, yeah, Judea Pearl has been formalizing this yeah. theory. I mean, there is this famous example. I'll just repeat it. I think sure. it's from Adams or somebody. Sure. That, you know, if uh, you could say that, you know, if Oswald hadn't killed, uh, 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 if Oswald didn't kill Kennedy, so somebody else, else did. Else would have. And mm. No, somebody else did. Did. And we would all agree with this sentence. Yes. If you say if Oswald hadn't killed Kennedy, somebody else would have and we wouldn't uh, agree with this that. is true so why is it that we intuitively have a sense of this being true and how do we formalize this and uh, i mean uh, i think uh, judy apple has been saying that you know you must think of the smallest change that i mean this goes back to lewis, lewis david yes. lewis yes yeah, that the smallest change of course it's difficult to define what is the smallest change but <laughs> but you can judy apple has uh, managed to give the mathematics and you can say that counterfactuals just change your world you know by by small amount of information and uh, maybe that is what scientific experiments do that we have some model of reality and we perturb it uh, a little little a little hmm. bit and uh, uh, maybe uh, by this we get a sense of what causes what so i think maybe we can form causal models of reality in fact judy apple seems to say that you know all science is about forming uh, causal models of reality and uh, this purely data oriented statistics oriented view is not good enough i mean you know That's right. uh, yeah i mean yeah i don't know maybe professor yes Bansi no this is absolutely right and again counterfactuals have had their their history i mean russell and a lot of logical positivists following russell at the in the 1930s and 40s just banned them from science altogether they thought counterfactuals you know um if hitler, if hitler had invaded england in 1940 he would have x well who can tell i mean if he invaded england who knows what would have happened you know they're, they're sort of unmanageable um but then they came back in people said well look we can't i mean russell thought we could do without causation altogether that all science should just be um you know changes in state i mean just a dynamic of the equations governing changes of state of a systems but no causal story um but causation had a habit of coming back and with them with it came back counterfactuals and so now as as also saying there's the sort of judea paul and um various others um very anxious to get a decent logic of counterfactuals going what would be your prognosis for the future of causation um i've got very maverick views about causation why <laughs> they're welcome um, well um i'm fundamentally a humian about yes, causation yes you humian is people and, call you um uh hume thought that really our data stripped down is exposure to patterns in the world exposure to regularities um but exposed to regularities the mind changes and the way it changes is it uh his lovely phrase is it um it no longer scruples to foretell 
one event on the appearance or the occasion of another. So you get cemented into a kind of uh, straitjacket of expectations. And you take those expectations into counterfactual possibilities. So, uh, you know, there's an electric socket there. I will say if you put your finger in it, you get a shock. Yeah. If you had put your finger in it, you'd have got a shock. It's, you know, cemented in my mind that putting your finger in the socket... Shocks. And some hundred years pass by and no one has put a finger in the socket anymore. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's because they're too yeah. sensible. <laughs> um, um, so so, so I, I, I believe that our habit of mind, which um, again we share with animals, um, means that as it were, nature provides the regularities. We provide the causal theories. We are good at selecting out salient changes, changes it's important for us to recognize. This is an element of pragmatism in my sure. in my philosophy, sure. that we're very good at telling what's good for us and what's bad for us. And the regularities that we can rely on and manipulate are the ones we, de- we stamp as causal. We say that's a causal, a causal law, and we may even say it's necessary. It's got a modal status. Mm. Um, but we don't apprehend necessities. They're not things to which we respond. All we respond to are regularities. That's my nat- natural, that's my stripped-down metaphysics. Thank you. That's that's very interesting. Rajat, what's the final word on this? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think mathematicians, going back to truth, um, I think mathematicians by and large have been afraid <laughs> to uh, to give it too much value, uh, and that's Does why this matter. <laughs> yeah, th- and that's why you know they they've sort of settled on on a great deal of formalism, um, and uh, but as Professor Blackburn said, um, you know th- there are certain things which which don't change. Um, as the example he gave was you know piano's arithmetic. Yeah. Um, whether whether at some point they might, I'm I'm not sure. But um, this pure formalism has been further encouraged by the computer scientists. Um, yeah. But um, you know, this one point about uh, you know nature and realism and 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 mathematics. You know, I I gave you that example of, you know, how a physicist turned into a mathematician because, you know, he didn't want the constraints constraints of of nature. He didn't want the constraints of nature. Arishandra. Yeah. yeah, So he was, you know, just satisfied with this pure formalism. Um, (laughs) And by and large, I think mathematicians... Now are, are so the are, natural is a subset of the mathematical. Pardon? The natural is a subset of the mathematical. Subset? I don't know whether it's a subset. Uh, it's mathematicians would rather not have it at all. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> they would just like to study these formal structures, and uh, you know, be free to derive theorems um, about these structures. Uh, quite formally, irrespective of, uh, you know, whether there's some reality uh, that 
some regularity underlying it or not yeah so uh, thank you i think <laughs> So mathematicians by and large I think shun the word truth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I'm that optimistic note. Yeah. <laughs> thank you no thank you really appreciate your time and we'll look forward to having you all soon again. Thank you take care. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.